Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Hey everybody, welcome to Chasing Hermes, I'm Sean. And I am Jason as always. Hi Sean, how are you doing? I'm good, and you're Jason as always, always. Since it is Thursday, I'm Jason. Uh, on Saturdays, I'm Tracy. <laughs> so, Jason... Yes, Sean? I think that all of our listeners will be glad to know that we haven't waited two months uh, in between episodes this time. Nah. <laughs> Figured uh, we'd get right back onto it. Yeah. Well, Sean, if you remember last time we spoke about the Neoplatonic Academy of Florence oh, at yes. the end of the 15th century with... Ficino and Pico della Mirandola and Cosimo oh, de Medici yes. and all those uh, friendly faces that we've seen before. <laughs> right. This is the start of the Renaissance, and the Renaissance spreads all over Europe. Pretty soon it reaches England, mm. and in England arises a really important figure, both in the history of the scientific revolution right. and in the history of magic. His name is John Dee. John Dee, yes. John Dee is perhaps one of the uh, the best examples of the Renaissance man. Um, you know, oftentimes when people are talking about that term, the Renaissance man, they they call to mind images of someone who studies all forms of knowledge, uh, mathematics, natural science, as well as art and poetry and, and things of this nature. And John Dee... Uh, was both influential in the sciences as well as in art and, as we will see, the occult. He was well-trained in mathematics, in geometry, astronomy, astrology. Mm -hmm. uh, he studied map-making, which was a very difficult undertaking back then. Yeah, right. They didn't have satellites. No, not at all. He was <laughs> an advisor to the queen. He was an occultist, a spiritist, and an amazing guy. <laughs> so, Sean, take us back to the beginning. Where does John Dee come from? Well, John Dee is born uh, in England in 1527. He is born into this world where the, the humanist movement had already started to take form, right? And humanist, as we remember, is the, the idea that man had the freedom of inquiry. Yes. And... What's important to understand is that John Dee's initial upbringing and education is very much similar to other scientists and natural philosophers that have come from that era. The thing that's different about John Dee is where he takes this learning and how he influenced both Hermeticism as well as Theurgy. And his impact has reached us even today to the modern occultist, the modern hermeticist, and the modern practitioner of magic. Largely, we take our teachings straight from the experience of John Dee. Undoubtedly, yeah. So we see him growing up as a very learned scholar. Right. So from the ages of 16 and 19, this is interesting, it's said that John Dee only slept four hours a night, and the rest of the time he spent studying, right? Huh. So this guy was clearly interested in what he was learning, and at this time it was mathematics. 
1546, John D. gets his B.A. from St. John's College. He's only 19 at this point, right? Right, yeah. He's pretty young, right? And then he goes on in his early 20s and is recognized as a renowned lecturer at both Paris and Louvain universities. Right, so he's beginning to become well-respected, and during his travels, he's meeting a lot of the humanists that had moved into Paris. Yeah. Because at that time, we see a lot of the humanists and these Renaissance Hermeticist figures moving into Paris and in France. So he is immersed in these teachings from the pupils of the Florentine Academy. So he would have been reading the very same material that was issued and published and translated by Ficino and Pico della Mirandola. Yes, and the idea that he was enamored by was the philosophy that by combining the wisdom as written down uh, in the various Latin, Greek, Hebrew texts, right, these old writings, that somehow they would gain this universal wisdom. Right. And that this universal wisdom, which they saw expressed in mathematics, philosophy, astronomy, astrology, history... This is what is often referred to as syncretism, uh, which is this idea, or perhaps rather a need to look for explanations and look for similarities in a lot of different disparate uh, traditions, Mm -hmm. such as Hermitism, such as Christianity, such as the old Greek philosophers, etc. And Mm -hmm. I think it's very much a sign of the times here that uh, people are becoming dissatisfied with the answers that they're given from the clergy right. about the world around them, about the universe, and they're looking for something ancient. It's this idea of, of a golden past, if you will, right. that you can analyze these fragments of texts and find this true, pristine philosophy and this unified religion, yeah. if you will, that will solve and answer all of your questions, in a sense. But <laughs> but this turned out to be not so uh, fruitful. Not so fruitful. Um, not for D, anyways. As, as we'll come to find, he reached a point where he thought that he had learned everything there was to learn, and he still had more questions. But we see D becoming very educated and proficient uh, in a scholarly way in all things from medicine, mathematics, philosophy, astronomy, even astrology. Um, of course, everybody would have studied astrology at the day. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, the, huh? the astronomy and mathematics to them just led to astrology. And yeah, he absolutely. was a renowned astrologer yeah. as well as Kabbalist and hoped that through the Kabbalah, it would help him unlock that universal wisdom. Yeah, And as he was uh, learning all of these disciplines, he studied under some very renowned scholars of the day. And one of these scholars uh, was the renowned Mercator. Yep, the Belgian mapmaker. The great cartographer. But then he returns to England. He's called back by none other than Elizabeth, Queen of England. He and Elizabeth, before she had become queen, were actually already... um, engaging in conversations, right? They were already developing a relationship uh, that was largely uh, student-teacher based. Would you say it was a platonic? <laughs> it, it was very much platonic. At the time, I think Dee was around 31, 32 years old. Yes. And at this time, Elizabeth was under house arrest by the then Queen uh, Mary Tudor. But Dee casts an astrological horoscope and shows her that 
her chart is much more favorable than her sister's. Dee was trying to convince her that she could do great things for England and tried to use her horoscope as proof to convince her of this. So it's said that the future Queen Elizabeth sort of developed a sympathy for John Dee because they were both sort of persecuted under Mary Tudor. He's both confidant and scientific advisor and astrological expert uh, counselor <laughs> yes. all rolled into one. Exactly. And at this time, he had also just published his great work, The Hieroglyphic Monad. Yeah. Tell us about the hieroglyphic monad, well, Jason. It, it's not a very big book at all. It's actually very <laughs> no. small. It, it, right. It's simply a 26-part explanation of this symbol that he has come up with. You may have seen the symbol. It's pretty famous. It looks like a slightly modified Mercury symbol. Right. Right. So a circle with a, a semicircle on top and underneath a cross with two lunar crescents. And Dee set out to prove, or at least show, how he came to the conclusion that this symbol would unify all the different alchemical, zodiacal, and planetary symbols Mm -hmm. into one unified whole. And again, here's this idea of the syncretism, here's the idea of all being one. Yeah, and uh, many people say that it was Dee that actually first termed the English word unit. And it comes from, you know, this idea here that he discusses in the hieroglyphic monad, the one. Did he ever say whether the meter or the foot was the right unit? He did not, unfortunately. (laughs) So that uh, debate will continue. Eh. Meter. But another conclusion he was trying to draw from this hieroglyphic monad later on was the idea that through these primitive shapes and sacred geometrical objects, he could derive every alphabet of every language, and therefore uh, uncover the true one unified language. It's, it's a pretty complicated text, but the idea <laughs> right. is, is simple, that all is one. And he, he just proves it in a, shall we say, very typical way for his time. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's sort of the grand unified theory of the day, right? He's, he's, sure. he's moved by the same drive that many modern physicists are today, to unify all the forces in the known universe. D is trying to unify all of creation, both below as well as the heavens above. And it, no small task. Very ambitious guy, this D. Uh, very ambitious. And <laughs> and in doing so, he draws on the writings of Hermes Trismegistus. He draws on uh, the Old Testament, on the New Testament. And he draws on works of alchemy and theurgy. So having published this work and being convinced of the wisdom that can eventually be derived from it, he sets out to educate Elizabeth As her advisor, part of what he is doing is educating her on the topics of this book. And she's very interested. So you can see that that already she's very sympathetic for his works, uh, which will help him later on in his life when he he seems to get in trouble with a lot of people. Apparently, uh, the old Inquisition was still just lurking next door. But not in England, because England has reformed. Yes, there he shall be safe. <laughs> so, Jason, um, we know that one of Dee's, 
let's say, uh, more shadowy roles as the advisor to Queen Elizabeth uh, was more in the lines of James Bond than Aristotle. He was not only a very educated man, he was also a very well-connected man. And as such, uh, he could travel around in the different courts all over Europe. And she was a very smart and cunning woman. And she uh, she put him in her majesty's service, as it were. <laughs> I did mention James Bond in jest, but it was John D. who actually signed all of his letters to Queen Elizabeth with the numbers 007. He's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's that guy. So the original 007 on... Secret missions all over Europe. Isn't that wild? It's wild. And the enemy of the queen at this time uh, would have been the Spanish and Portuguese armadas uh, who were really trying to control not only the naval space of Europe, but of all over the newly discovered world as well. And uh, John Dee becomes an advisor to the queen also in these matters of what kind of expeditions to send out, and also on how to create the English Empire. He's a real imperialist, this D. And he very well may have been the first individual to convince the throne of England of its divinely inspired role in the imperialist ways, right? It was one of his great... Uh, endeavors was to help England spread throughout the entire known world and to to gain control over all the new world. It's very interesting. Somehow he comes across an obsidian stone uh, from somewhere in the Aztec Empire. So one of these faraway travelers must have presented it to him as a gift. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the crystals that he uses as a magic mirror uh. for his, shall we say, pseudo-scientific experiments. <laughs> uh, he, he, he has right, a lot right. of different uh, uh, magical objects and mm-hmm. crystal balls, various wax seals, uh, many of which are <laughs> on public display in the British Museum. You know, Jason, it's fascinating that D really seems to have the same spirit of discovery, the same curiosity for the world that scientists and physicists do today. Right. And he's driven to make the same discoveries. But what is so unique is that it's in a time when he allows himself to explore various occult tools. It's as though he has a hunger for knowledge that is ahead of his time. He's not satisfied with the answers that science and philosophy can tell him. He doesn't have computers and laser beams to play with, so he turns to the most profound uh, writings of his day, which speak of these magical objects, magic mirrors and, and talismans and mathematical squares that can predict the future. So, furthering his his quest for this transcendental and universal knowledge, right, the, this grand unified theory to, to seek the ultimate cause. Right. In this quest, he believes that he needs to turn to all of the knowledge that is available to him at that time. Uh, we know that this is a time of, of great discovery of ancient texts, of the ancient world that were being circulated at this time. Um, And this is why he was so versed in Greek and in Latin and in Hebrew. He he needed these languages in order to read all of these ancient texts because he believed that if he could unlock the secrets of these cryptic texts that, that he would uncover that 
universal wisdom that that he was seeking. So D becomes a huge collector of books, of manuscripts. And in fact, after he had failed in his petitioning of Queen Mary Tudor to establish a great library for England, he decides that he will form a library himself. And that day he had established the greatest and largest library uh, of anyone in England at that time. Yeah, this library contained about 3,000 books and countless manuscripts of various kinds. And he would have gathered them through his own travels, but also from visitors, and he would buy them on markets. Mm -hmm. This was the Alexandrian Library of London at the time. Very much And after his death, unfortunately, was scattered, and and a lot of the books were never recovered. Oh, man, wouldn't it be something to just have your hands on that entire collection? Absolutely. Incredible. (laughs) And, you know, we should mention that um, this library, it was his place at Mortlake. This is near London, and... This is where he establishes his own academy of sorts. Yeah. Much like the Florentine Academy that we saw Ficino establish. That's right. He would teach the brilliant people of his day. And right. he is known to have had the Archbishop of Canterbury come and visit him, uh, Walter Raleigh, the famous explorer. And they together uh, would sit and pore over these maps until very late at night mm-hmm. and try to establish where Walter Raleigh would possibly find his El Dorado, the city of gold. Oh, man. And I'm sure that D played his part in feeding those dreams and fantasies. No doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. Yeah. And, and it was here that he taught Queen Elizabeth and, and carried on you know, many of that correspondence with her. And it is here at Mortlake that one fateful evening, as D is trying to sleep in his bedchamber. <laughs> Surrounded by books. Probably. Using them as pillows and covers. That's the image in my mind. No, that's Robin Hood that you're thinking about. (laughs) He's woken up in the middle of the night by these strange noises. At first he hears knocks, and then he hears whispers, but he can't decipher them. And they keep on going night after night. And he's convinced that there's something in the room that is trying to contact him. Hmm. And so he sets out to try and find who is behind these strange noises. No doubt it had nothing to do with the hallucinogenic ink that was being used at the time to write many of the books that he was reading. Are you making that up? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I just. (laughs) It could have been uh, some sort of spores in his old books. You know, that's what it would have been on Dr. House. So what you're saying, Jason, is that here in Mortlake, he is inspired not just through education and knowledge, but through actual experiential... um, Visitors from the grave? uh, Visitors from the grave, right. Yes, yes, that's what it is. And I guess this is what really prompts him to try and contact these spirits himself. And he Mm -hmm. uses one of his crystals to try and crystal gaze Mm -hmm. but he's very disappointed with this type of uh, working and he simply has to admit to himself that although he's a brilliant scholar he has a great mind he is not a terribly good crystal gazer so he needs help yes along comes a man named barnabas saul and barnabas saul was a preacher and a self-professed medium Mm -hmm. and he ends up at mortlake just like a lot of people pass through there. Right. And Dee and Saul attempt to have a seance Ooh. on the winter solstice of 1581. Uh, Dee keeps a very meticulous transcript of everything that is said during these seances. Right. And the angels 
that Saul sees, they talk about another who is to come, mm-hmm. another to whom is assigned the stone. And very soon after this experience, Saul stops all kinds of mediumship, and he is said to have never had a spiritual experience again. Hmm. But another friend of these introduces him to a young man called Edward Talbot. Hmm. also known as... Edward Kelly. Edward Kelly. This proves to be a match made in heaven, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) The two are extremely different. Kelly is a scoundrel, a scruffy-looking nerf herder. (laughs) Right. Whereas Dee is a nobleman. Well, and Kelly is much younger than Dee. Kelly is 27, and Dee is 55. He's an old man. Yeah, Kelly was born pretty much the same year that Dee was being tried for treason by uh, Mary Tudor. Yeah, but Kelly is extremely gifted. He's a rough man, Mm -hmm. but not an evil-spirited man. Now, Jason, it's kind of mysterious. We know so much about John Dee. There's there's so much that he has recorded himself. There are so many other figures throughout history that have written about him. But Edward Kelly, we don't know that much about. Yeah. He's said to have served as an apprentice to an apothecary. So that may have been where his interest in alchemy began. Uh, We do know that more than anything, he was driven by this quest for the Philosopher's Stone. And in fact, later we come to find out through Dee's diaries that Kelly had sought out Dee, namely because he believed Dee could help uh, help him understand a book. What was the book? The book was called The Book of St. Dustin, and he bought this from an innkeeper along with a mysterious vial of red powder and a vial of white powder. Ooh. And in this book, it talks about how the white powder is to be used for transmuting metals to silver and the red powder to transmute metals to gold. So this is pretty familiar subject matter to anyone who is familiar with, you know, metallic alchemy. And for Kelly... This becomes his ultimate quest. Interestingly enough, it was said uh, that this book and the vials uh, were stolen from a crypt of a Catholic bishop. Well, this would be in character with Kelly because he was accused of a lot of things during his time, uh, among which was necromancy. (laughs) He had a penchant (laughs) for digging in graves, apparently. Uh, Apparently. (laughs) Like you do. (laughs) Like you do. Interesting guy, this Kelly. So the two really couldn't be more different. Yeah, you probably wouldn't see D uh, digging in the graves of some Catholic bishop <laughs> fingering his goods. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Although we don't know much about Kelly, we do know that he did have an interest in the dark arts, um, and some of which in- included a lot of the writings of Agrippa and many other occult uh, texts. And, and it's said that you know a friend of his uh, was present while he dug up the body of a pauper in order to invoke its spirit. So, uh, very, very colorful individual. Indeed. Kelly seems to be a person with this fairly negative and individualistic outlook on life right. and the universe. And Kelly very often mistrusts the messages that pour through mm-hmm. the stone. 
Whereas D really wants to believe everything that comes through, even though sometimes the messages are often revised and contradictory. Yeah, it's no secret throughout Dee's diaries that Kelly was adamant about questioning the source of the material they were gaining. You know, Dee was convinced that all of the angels that Kelly had seen were coming from the heavens and were divinely sent. Kelly was not so sure. Kelly was not convinced that these were not, in fact, demons that were trying to dupe them. So in their first encounter with the spiritual world together, uh, they meet a small girl who turns out to be the one who was behind Mm. all these mystical sounds at night. And she presents herself as Medimi. Mm -hmm. And this Medimi, through various shapes and guises, turns out to be one of the angels who is to teach them the angelical system of magic and the angelical language. Mm. But Medimi is just one of many angels. In another very, very early session, Kelly sees in the looking glass the angel Uriel, and Mm -hmm. he sees him holding a symbol which Dee is is supposed to engrave on a gold plate and wear as a lamen or as a breastplate. Mm -hmm. And it's a mystical symbol with various numbers uh, and letters and symbols, uh, which is to protect his body during all of these seances. So the very first thing that the angels give them are instructions on how to even be able to stand their angelic and divine presence. Oh, I see. However, like I said, there are many revisions in these texts, (laughs) and a later angel, much later, declares that this first Uriel was actually an imposter, and he then continues to give him the revised true breastplate, as it were. So a lot of times they have to go back and revise their old findings in order to come up with continuously improved and perfected system. You know, it's easy to see, Jason, now that due to these experiences, how Dee truly found this as a superior mode of learning. Yeah. You know, now he's going right to the source. He wrote in his diaries about a conversation he had with the Emperor Rudolf later on in his life. And he says, and I quote, All my life I had spent in learning, but for this forty years continually, in sundry manners and in diverse countries, with great pain, care, and cost, I had from degree to degree sought to come by the best knowledge that man might attain unto in this world. And I found that neither any man living nor any book I could yet meet with all, was able to teach me these truths I desired and longed for. And therefore, I concluded with myself to make intercession and prayer to the giver of wisdom to send me such wisdom, as I might know the nature of his creatures and also enjoy means to use them to his glory and honor. So this speaks very clearly of these motives. He's after superior knowledge. He's after the mysteries of mm-hmm. the universe. And he is also a very devout yes. Christian. And when you read his writings, um, particularly the transcripts mm-hmm. of these sessions, they are completely riddled with incantations, mm-hmm. with glorifications, and with giving honor and praise yeah. to God. Yeah, it's clear that Dee did not devise his technique 
of communicating with the angels out of thin air, right? Uh, he, he bases much of this on techniques of early grimoireic writings. First of all, he gets the idea of even communicating with higher angelic presences. When he read early on in his life uh, the work of Trithemius, who was Agrippa's mentor and teacher. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he wrote a book called Stegnographia. So these ideas are further codified through his pouring over other books in his collection, such as the Sworn Book of Honorius, uh, the Heptameron, the Armadel, the Arbitel, the Almadel, the Art of Pauline. A lot of these are what we now refer to as Solomonic grimoires. Um However, yeah. you, you know, you did mention just now that D was very devout. He was would consider himself very pious, and a lot of uh, the motivation for his technique comes from the Sworn Book of Honorius, which truly uh, lays the foundation for the importance of piety, of prayers, of cleanliness. It's a call in these workings to approach the angels with a holy reverence. And you can really see this holy reverence in everything that he says. Mm-hmm. This is a far cry removed from the bastardization that this particular angelic system has later undergone through people such as Anton LaVey, who mm. used it in his satanic invocations. Right. I mean, this, there's really nothing satanic about these endeavors. No, not at all. And, and in fact, he was so convinced that his approach to this work was nothing like the wizards, witches, and magicians of the past that were being brought up on trial as being devilish and satanic, that when his reputation was being challenged by other religious figures, he welcomed the opportunity to stand trial Uh, in front of his peers so that he could defend himself. And he was so convinced that he would be found innocent that he welcomed this trial. Huh. Yeah, that's true. I didn't make that up. No, of course. Now, Jason, as someone who is very interested in uh, science and mathematics as well as philosophy, I kind of have a sympathy for Dee in that it seems that in this stage of his life, he was so driven by the things that he could not understand He was really enamored by the challenges of the mysteries that he didn't yet have the answers to. And one of these was contained in what was called the Book of Soiga. What what was the Book of Soiga? So the Book of Soiga, (laughs) which if you were to open it, wouldn't look like much of a book at all because it looks like just a chart and graph of random letters of no known language, no syntax, no paragraphs. It, it's practically impossible to read. But Dee was convinced that this book of Soiga hmm. could unlock the mysteries of the universal language. So convinced, in fact, that many of the early sessions with the angels, Dee was asking for information on how to interpret the book of Soiga yes. in order to use it to learn about the universe. Right. And the angel Uriel says the only being in the universe who can help Dee with this is the archangel Mikael. Mm. But to contact Mikael, Dee first has to prepare the working space. Mm. It is not enough 
to just wear the breastplate. Nope. He also must construct a special table, mm. and he gives extremely detailed instructions on how to build this table. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certain sigils you have to put into the legs of the table. It has to be of a certain size and proportions. Yeah, it's very much like the Pauline art that Solomonic grimoire also makes use of the holy table in invoking the angels. Uriel also gives instruction on how to build the sigil of the Holy Spirit, or the Sigillum Dei Amet. Mm, yes. Which is a wax seal engraved with a heptagon and various names and symbols. And it's an extremely complicated symbol. You'll find it online. And the original wax seal still exists in the British Museum on display. Oh, wow. The seal would be placed on top of the table, and on top of the seal, you would place the shoe stone, the crystal. Mm. And through this, they would be able to contact Mikael. So we see in this working already a uh, sort of a synthesis of all of the, the various magical art forms taught throughout the other books that he'd been studying, right? Yeah. But here we find these forms refined. We see the use of the holy table, much like in the art Pauline. We see various forms of the Sigillium Dea Meth, but they're, they're far more simplified in such works as the Sworn Book of Honorius. Here we see the angels, namely Uriel, who is perfecting these more simplified tools to be used by D in order to contact Mikael. Imagine the excitement from D and Kelly after all these years of study and then now finally making the contact. Yeah. And it is as though a lifetime of study is paying off <laughs> in very, very rapid right. succession. You can almost imagine it. it's sort of the same feeling that a lot of the... Uh, astronomers of today would get at the, at the thought of first contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the movie Contact, remember right. that? When, yeah, when exactly. the first thing they get is the message on how to build the machine, and the machine yeah. in this case is <laughs> the table, right? Very much so. That's exactly what we see the angel here, Uriel, communicating to Dee and Kelly. You know, they are building the apparatus that they're going to need in order to receive all of the wisdom that they're seeking. It's not good enough to just you know, sit in front of your altar and, and say a prayer or two. Here, we see almost this majestic, magical science unfolding that, that synthesizes a lot of the Solomonic grimoire texts, a lot of the stuff in the Swarm Book of Honorius. You see even the use of the wax seal whereupon is laid the showstone. And D likely saw this uh, from his Solomonic grimoires. But again, here we find the angels are elevating these. So it's as though they're taking what Dee and Kelly have to work with and they're making them appropriate for communications with the higher divine angels. So Sean, what would you say is the overall message that these angels are trying to convey to Dee and Kelly? Appropriately enough, um, just as we know that Dee was very much enamored with the idea of the new world, we read in Dee's diaries that a lot of the angelic communications dealt largely with the importance of the new world mm. and how this, was, this new world was going to spawn new governments and, and new world leaders that would bring about a new age. 
Um, so the angels are really confirming these imperialistic leanings. If you oh will. yeah, encouraging yeah. them mm. and yeah. and really inspiring D to drive the English throne into the new world, so that this empire can bring about this new age, this new world. What they even say is a new world order. John D, Father of America. You know, it really does ring of a prophecy towards democracy. Sure. This, this was a new form of government that these angels were, were speaking of, and a whole new world that was going to change the entire face of the globe. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And the angels often speak in terms and symbolism that are borrowed from the book of Revelation as revealed under John. Mm -hmm. Um, They talk about the new and heavenly Jerusalem. They talk about a throne whereupon sits the one, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, They talk about angels and angelic hosts and armies of God who are to reform the earth, as it were. And armies and legions of angels is what we see in Dee's work. Um, You know, up till this point, you could probably write out the names of all the angels that were written about in history in a relative-sized book. But in the works of Dee, as received through Kelly and as Dee as the magician, countless angels. I mean, if you were to extrapolate from the works of Dee all the possible angelic presences that govern the world, you'd be at it for quite a while. So at this time, when Dee and Kelly have started their work, a Polish nobleman called Olbracht Laszki, I think I'm saying that right, hello Poland, um, <laughs> visited Dee and Kelly in uh, Mortlake. Mm-hmm. He participated in some of these scrying sessions, and he suggested that Dee and Kelly should come and visit Poland. So off they go. They seek permission from Queen Elizabeth, mm-hmm. who says, go ahead and spy for me. Right, uh, right. <laughs> and, uh, Undoubtedly. Uh, yes, sure. License to scry. <laughs> this begins a journey that is to last for several years, where John Dee and Edward Kelly carry around their magical and alchemical experiment mm-hmm. materials uh, through the various courts of Central and Eastern Europe starting in Poland and Krakow. Mm-hmm. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Krakow. They set up shop in the Polish court. Later, they are attracted to Emperor Rudolf II's court in Prague. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to Prague? I have not, but I've heard it's beautiful this time of year. It's a beautiful city, and still today, near the old palace, mm-hmm. you'll find a whole street which is full of little huts, and it's called the alchemist stalls. Oh, wow. So it was a whole street that was full of alchemists and their little workshops, and they were all employed by Emperor Rudolf II. Oh, wow. To make gold. To make gold, of course. <laughs> well, of course. And it, I think that this is a good point to mention, that right about this time, there's a bit of tension that starts to develop between Dee and Kelly. As you recall... Kelly sought out Dee in hopes that he would teach him how to unlock the mysteries of the Philosopher's Stone. Of gold-making, specifically. But Dee wasn't interested in that, was he? Well, you know, Dee was interested in using Kelly as his scry. Yeah. So any of the alchemical workings that Dee might have been doing were done very secretly and Uh, and not really shared with, with Kelly, perhaps because... I'm just guessing here, but maybe he felt that if Kelly had gleaned everything from D, that he wouldn't have stuck around. 
But Kelly was not one to uh, turn down an audience no. with Emperor Rudolf II, so <laughs> he set up his own alchemical demonstrations. He did, and he was renowned for having demonstrated the actual transmutation of base metals to gold. So they say it's one of the very few recorded events mm-hmm. of an actual transmutation taking place. Yeah, And it should be noted that the only book Kelly ever wrote was a book on alchemy. There you go. So, Jason, let's talk a little bit about what these angels were teaching Dee and Kelly. It really is unique and fascinating, the degree and the precision that this work conveys. It's truly remarkable. And part of what has made these diaries so renowned is the angelic language right now most people today would refer to this language as enochian right but you won't see dean kelly referring to it as that anywhere they just call it the angelic tongue right the angels that spoke to dean kelly claimed that this angelic language was the original language in fact that it was the language that was spoken in the garden of eden before the fall of man right But after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, human beings forgot how to speak the angelic tongue. But one man, Enoch, was able to return to the garden. He is Mm. the only person who, according to the Bible, did not die. He never died. He was assumed completely taken by God. And was said to have been one who walked with God. And he, according to the angels, was again reintroduced to the angelic language. There really is very little connection between the angelic language and any other language that is spoken today or that we know of. Mm -hmm. It is not entirely unlike English in its syntax and, and the way it's constructed, But it is very hard to believe that anyone can come up with something like this. There were really two phases of the language as it was transmitted to Dee and Kelly. Uh The first one was a transmission that uh, was, was deemed the Liber Logeth. And in this book, we see a very poetic and rhyming structure to the language. And this was the language that, as you mentioned, was said that uh, Adam spoke in the Garden of Eden. And then later, this book was used to transmit a second language. This second language, which was used to construct all of the calls and the rest of the entire Enochian magical system to Dee and Kelly, was transcribed through Kelly, letter by letter, in reverse. Now, this is remarkable, Jason. Uh So, uh imagine, they've written down this Liber Logeth, okay, and and it's in the form of various grids and columns and rows, okay? Now, D, having invoked the angels and having said the prayers and the chants and the incantations, uh, is standing over Kelly, who's gazing into the showstone. And Kelly describes that he sees the angels before him pointing to a specific row and a specific column. Right. Right? So Kelly says he's pointing to row three, column four. And so D goes to the book and he sees, oh, that's the letter B. So 
he writes down the letter B. And then Kelly says, now he's pointing to row three, column five. And then D looks and he points and that's a V. So he writes down a V. It must have taken ages. <laughs> it took forever, letter by letter yeah. and mm. backwards. So you can see that the result of this should have been a mishmash of complete randomness. But in fact, that's not what we see at all. No, it isn't. And as we mentioned earlier, Kelly was always very skeptical towards the messages of these angels, Mm -hmm. whereas Dee really wanted to believe every single letter of it. And it raises some interesting questions about the nature of this kind of transmitted material, because Mm -hmm. whenever you're doing this kind of work, there will always be some bias of both the invoker and of the scryer. (laughs) Absolutely. And one can really question this language. Right. It seems to be consistent with itself, Mm -hmm. but then again, we don't have enough of it to really make a complete mapping of the language. There are a lot of words that you would like to see that are missing. Mm -hmm. People have been able to construct a dictionary of about 2,500 words, uh, and these words recur, so it seems that it is indeed consistent with itself. However, there are some words that are really... Uh, shall we say, interesting. <laughs> For example, sure. uh, absolutely. given these imperialistic tendencies, <laughs> isn't it inter- interesting that the word for kingdom would be Londo? <laughs> oh. <laughs> hmm. And the word for iniquity would be Madrid. <laughs> if you remember, they were at war with Spain. Uh, and well, apparently, uh, that just reinforced his belief that God loves England. Sorry, all you Spanish listeners out there. <laughs> well, You know, we have no idea of knowing the source of this material. It has been said that the entities that Dee and Kelly were conversing with range from everything from extraterrestrials to the recesses of their subconscious mind. But what seems clear is that it was not just made up on the spot. At least to me. You know, there's a lot of people who say that Kelly just duped Dee, and it was all a ruse in order to hopefully one day get Dee to convince him how to make the Philosopher's Stone. But would Kelly have been smart enough for that? And would he have been persistent enough? They were at this for eight years. (laughs) Right. And then when you put on top of that, this concept that they received these various calls to invoke angels through this method of the column and the row to find a letter that spelled the entire call backwards that they then reversed in order to use later. It just seems impossible that any human could have just made this up. Now, as I said, the result, you know, if you and I were to do this today without invoking any special aid, would probably be chaos, a mishmash of random letters. But as we've mentioned, syntax has been established to some degree, right? In the 1970s, a specialist of language, Donald Laycock, he showed that the first book, Liber Logeth, was very poetic and showed repetition and rhyme schemes and alliteration that was very similar to speaking in tongue. So he he suggests that Kelly was likely in a trance at this state. But he also found that the later Enochian language of these 48 calls had a consistent set of elements and a grammar. You know, we see a repetition of prefixes, a repetition of words that statistically is so improbable, given the method of reception, 
that it just amazes me at the resulting language that was established. Now, Jason, if we were to uh, try to capture all of the details of the system, this podcast would probably be about, oh, say, a week long. I'm afraid it would. So we don't have time, unfortunately, to go into all the details that were received, but we will put on our website... um, you know, links to various materials that, that you can use to, to do the research on your own. You will not be disappointed. That's right. So maybe we should move on to what caused Dee and Kelly to cease working with each other. Mm. Dee and Kelly both traveled with their respective wives as they were moving through the courts of Europe. Mm-hmm. Kelly's marriage was actually instigated by the angel Michael. Right. He was under a vow of celibacy and just sought this alchemical knowledge and had no interest of being married at all. But Mikhail instructed him that, no, Mr. Kelly, you have to get married. (laughs) But uh, Kelly apparently didn't like his wife at all. (laughs) No. But uh, he seemed to have liked Dee's wife. And so... (laughs) Hey, we don't know that. (laughs) We don't know that. Um, But it's interesting that towards the end of Dee's and Kelly's working together, as they're in the court of Rudolf II, the angels, specifically Raphael, supposedly tells Dee and Kelly that they have to share everything in common. The idea was that they have to be as one. And it, again, echoes this idea of the monad, Mm -hmm. of uniting all opposites, including the male and the female, so that everything that belonged to Kelly would belong to Dee, and vice versa. Yes, but we have to also consider the fact that in this stage of their working, they really were uh, told that sometime very soon they were going to be receiving the pinnacle of the wisdom that they were seeking. D at this time is very open-minded to just about anything that's coming through because he believes that they're being prepared to receive this one wisdom. So the angel Medimi comes through again in one fateful session (laughs) <laughs> and tells them that uh, in order to, shall we say, consummate this <laughs> newfound unity that they are told to display, they have to swap wives. Right. Um, hmm. Yeah. And there are many interesting things about this. For, you know, one is this notion that Kelly actually didn't like his wife at all. The other is that Dee's wife would probably have been in her late 50s at this time, and Kelly would have been in his early 30s. Right. The wives don't necessarily agree to this at first, but they are well informed of the workings of their husbands, mm-hmm. and they too believe that the messages from the angels are correct. So reluctantly, everybody goes along with this proposition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and I, we've I, seen this movie a hundred times. <laughs> I, I'm guessing there is an alchemist hat and a, you know, a bunch of car keys involved. I don't know. But after this fateful night... Things get messy. Things get weird. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) Right. So, right. Things do definitely get weird for whatever reason. And there's a few interpretations of what's going on here, right? I mean, the obvious one is just that Kelly wants to get it on with Dee's wife. Obviously. But there is the matter that before Kelly had told Dee about what Nadimi had told him that he was very upset that day and he'd actually tried to leave right. uh, the premises and didn't want to work with D anymore. And then that's when D pressed him and he then said, Well, 
because they want us to share our wives. So at least the image was that Kelly was not so happy about this. But others have said that he was just putting on a show to further convince Dee. Right. But Jason, as you and I both know, one of the the things to consider is that there's always interference that comes in during these workings, right? That you never open up a channel to the higher realms and have an unbroken line. There's always going to be some type of interference. So I prefer to think that perhaps this Medimi was more of, you know, let's just say nefarious Mm. shadows around them that were uh, taking on the form of someone they trusted. So it's it's another possibility that they were just being duped by other realms. I also see this as a cautionary tale because... Absolutely. I've seen people who have gone against their better judgment in the search for something spiritual, and they have broken their own moral codes willingly uh, in order to serve some, some greater good. Yeah, and right. And very often what happens is that this bad conscience eventually catches up with you. Mm-hmm. And after that, nothing is ever the same. Yeah. And I'm wondering if these people who are very pious, at least D was, I'm sure something broke in him mm-hmm. after he went through with this proposition. Yeah, it's true that D always found Kelly to be a good friend, and he often wrote that he hoped they would get together again one day and continue their work. But unfortunately, that couldn't happen. Kelly ends up being a little bit too involved in Emperor Rudolf II's court. Mm. The emperor is so enamored with Kelly that he asks him to produce a lot of gold, (laughs) uh, which Kelly says, okay, I guess I'll do that. Because you don't say no to the emperor, but he fails to produce as much gold as the emperor would like. And so for that reason, and perhaps a few other brouhaha's that Kelly (laughs) gets involved in, he ends up being imprisoned in the tower. Right. And he falls essentially to his death while trying to escape. Only about four years of age. Whereas John Dee returns to England with his wife, returns to his beloved Mortlake, and lives there until he's well over 80. Right, which was ancient in those days. Totally. So alas, uh, Jason, here we find uh, our friends having departed, but Dee's work was yeah. not quite done. No, it wasn't. It continued well after his, his death. His reputation as a scholar, as a scientist, uh, and as an advisor remains up until this day. Yeah, Jason. I mean, the works of Dee uh, and Kelly have been very influential, as you mentioned, as a natural philosopher, but as well as an occultist, and a great inspiration to all those who would carry on after him and really dig even deeper into this angelic magic as it was handed down to him. What really fascinates me is the sincerity of John Dee's quest for knowledge. Yeah. To understand not only this world, but the world that lies behind it. And how frustrated he must have been by living in these times in the 16th century when science had only come so far. Right. And how desperate he must have been mm-hmm. to turn to the spiritual realm in order to gain the knowledge that he desired. And in so doing, he uncovered an entire new system of magic and a worldview uh, that was transmitted to him, which is still being studied by scholars today. And I would say still hasn't been completely understood, charted, and mapped. Well, Jason, I think that we can clearly see how John Dee has become such an archetype, and hopefully now we know a little bit more about him. 
Join us again next time for another enticing, enlightening, and chilling episode of Chasing Hermes. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at chasinghermes.com. To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.